Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. All right, hello, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns. I'm here with P.T. Weinberg, as always. We're excited to have you in the co-host chair, as always, and we're really excited to have Leslie Cohen from the Davis Companies here, as well, to talk about a lot of her experience in the real estate development industry in Boston with some of the larger developers in Boston, as well as her take on workplace culture and how we can help empower more women in the real estate, commercial real estate space. So Leslie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're fired up to have you. Yeah, great to have you here. Yeah. Hi, Mike. Hey, PT. Um, so Leslie, maybe just a little bit of background we can talk about. It. I believe, by the way, you might be the first person I've ever met from Tulsa. So if that's correct, but maybe you can talk to us about how you got to Boston. Sure. So um, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I came here for school. I went to Tufts University. Um, I studied civil engineering and um, really fell into commercial real estate. I um, started out studying um, pre-med and civil engineering. Um, My parents had said to me, you know, you're welcome to study pre-med, but we're not paying for a biology degree or a chemistry degree. You need to graduate with something that you can get a job in. Um, so my dad convinced me that engineering had largely the same, uh, prerequisites Mm -hmm. other than organic chemistry. So I did both and then, um, ended up having a, uh, did an internship at Sasaki Associates Mm -hmm. along the way and was exposed to the built environment with some amazing projects that they did with, you know, golf courses in Aruba and Legoland in California. And, um, (laughs) along the way decided, Another four years of school was probably not in my in my future and really was intrigued by, you know, development. And so um, ended up working in engineering for about five years, but then realized that my passion was not designing drainage systems or parking lots. Um, <laughs> not and, quite Legoland, I guess. Exactly. Um, although I did design the parking lot uh, in Legoland in California. Um, and so ultimately... Um, decided I wanted to work on the client side. Mm. Um, so I took a detour, um, you know, after a year of trying to move to the developer side, but I was, you know, 26 or 27, not from Boston, female, not networked in this mm. very provincial town, um, ended up going to work at Staples and worked mm-hmm. in their real estate department. Okay. Um, learned everything about retail that I could, um, learned from their, you know, lawyers, analysts, developers, um, and then ended up going to work at Samuels through a former client of mine got wow. connected, um, to the team at Samuels and then spent the, the next 20 years there. Nice. Yeah. So you had a long run, long successful run at Samuels where you guys basically redesigned the entire of the uh, Fenway neighborhood, which is pretty incredible. That must've been an exciting time. It was great. It was great. I mean, when I joined Samuels, Samuels was largely still a grocery anchored shopping center developer. Mm. Um, at that time, you know, they were still working in that area, but then starting to buy land in the Fenway and starting to kind of reimagine what that whole district could be. Um, so probably for the first, you know, half of my development career, um, I worked on really development and redevelopment of retail, um, and, you know, kind of suburb, more suburban mixed use, Mm -hmm. and then moved over to kind of the urban large scale development work. So how much of that? you know, vision and assemblage kind of predated you at Samuels versus were you in the trenches for during that first part of your tenure there before shifting more into like an operational CO role? 
Um, so it was going on while I was there. Yeah. The the visioning and the assemblage. I was not working directly on that. Yeah. Um, when I was at Samuel's, I was working, um, you know, really more on the you know on the bread and butter side of the house. Okay. Um, it was going on, but I wasn't directly involved in it. You know, I worked in development for about thirteen years. I would say the first half I was working in the you know, the retail side. And then the second half I was, you know, our, our, our lines of business kind of crossed. So, you know, at some point along the way, we sort of kind of wound down the grocery anchor shopping center and really realized our sweet spot was in complicated mixed use development. Yeah. Um, and so then I kind of moved over to the more complex mixed use projects like Continuum and Alston. I worked on the Pierce. So I worked on a lot of the smaller scale um, redevelopments in the Fenway, like the Verb Hotel mm -hmm. Um, you know, the yard house where Samuel's office was, I did that. Um, so, um, a bunch of those smaller projects there as well. Yeah. It's, so. I mean, it's so, it's so amazing what happened in that neighborhood. So I lived, I lived in Kenmore square from basically Oh two till 14 and just, you know, I remember that part of the Fenway, you know, going up to whether it was to get gas at you know, one of those couple of gas stations that were up there. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't much there. Right? And then over this, yeah. you know, 10, 15 year span, it's really, it's just incredible. Yeah. Gas stations, there. fast food. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's transformational. I mean, Steve Samuels is a visionary. You know, he had this vision for what, you know, he thought it could be you know, brought along a neighborhood and a community, you know, to see that vision together. Um, and, um, you know, over, you know, two decades turned it into really something special and wonderful for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Just it's total sidebar, but what's wild context really, if you want to go way back is if you ever watch field of dreams, that movie, yeah. and when he goes to find, you know, um, James Earl Jones in the Fenway and this is like, you know, I don't know, it's like eighties, nineties. Right. And, uh, it's just incredible how different that looks. I, I caught that at some point yeah. like, over the summer and I was like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that's the same <laughs> right. place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way back field of dreams. I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a big nice. Costner resurgence going on. Apparently with, you know, yeah. Yellowstone right, right. and everything. I mean, come on. Yeah. 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 So Leslie, what was it like, um, joining a company like Samuel's, you know, as a young woman, maybe without a big network at the time coming from out of state and maybe you've developed a network, you know, at Staples and other places since then, but what, what was it like for you, um, at, uh, at Samuel's as a, as a young woman in the in real estate, uh, commercial real estate and development industry? Um, you know, I would, that was in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say it was. You know, I was learning a lot. Mm. You know, I came in, I kind of, I, I always say to people, I really oversold myself. I really, hmm. you know, was kind of sold myself into a job that I probably wasn't as qualified for. And, but I knew I could figure it out. Um, I was really lucky. I worked for Joel Sklar. I've, you know, said time and time again, he, you know, was my mentor and he turned out to be, you know, really a sponsor for mm -hmm. me. And, um, you know, and he was really instrumental in my career and really bringing me along. But, you know, I think as a woman in commercial real estate during that time, I would say it's a lone, it was a lonely existence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it was not intentional, but there just weren't, I was always the only woman in the room yeah. for the most part. Um, you know, occasionally there might be another, maybe a female lawyer, you know, maybe, I'm not sure who else that might have been mm -hmm. female, but there weren't too many other ones, yeah. right? But um, but it was a fairly lonely existence. Crew pay, played a very important yep. role. Um, I joined Crew, I think, in 2000 or 2001. Mm -hmm. And so that was, um, you know, also a place that was a little intimidating, right? I walk in that, you walk in that room and it was buzzing with, you know, all these really successful women um, who were out there. 
Um, but, you know, that was a great place to, one, practice how to network and how to build your brand. And, and um, but it was, that turned out to be a great organization for me. And um, that's something I also talk about, you know, openly and often that, you know, crew, you know, turned out to be a, a really wonderful resource for me, not only to build professional network and friendships, but, um, you know, I was on the board of crew. I became president of crew of mm. Boston. I, um, was in a really instrumental program at the national level called VP to C-suite oh, cool. where I was matched with a, a, was one, a group of cohort of 10 women in the country. And we were matched with mentors that were former CEOs, COOs, or CFOs in like a year long program. And it was a, um, a very, you know, kind of strategic mentoring program to get you, you know, from VP to C-suite. And I think that helped me get to be a partner, you know, at Samuels. And I still keep in touch with my mentor. That program was in 2010. And mm. we still talk awesome. at this point, probably like every six weeks. Oh, but wow. um and, you know, we're more peer kind of coach, peer mentors now, but um, that was a really, really great program um, and feel lucky that crew, you know, is available to women. Yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot of women talk about crew in the same sort of vein that you just did. And I know a lot of very successful, accomplished women that are, have participated, maybe still or, or didn't. And so I can I can see why there's incredible value. I've always I've always said that to a lot of people, like a lot of these sort of professional or mentorship organizations, no matter what the, you know, what the specific whether it's for women in commercial real estate or something else, they can be so valuable. But especially in this case, when 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 you're you know really trying to, I think you know a lot of us still think there's a lot of work to be done still to encourage and empower more women in commercial real estate specifically. So an organization like Crew, I know, is yeah. on the front lines of that, and it's pretty impressive and amazing to see. Yeah. So what what do you what would you say? Um, and and I know we'll we'll probably come back to to that a little bit more. But what would what would you say you know as far as your career evolved because you moved from the development side to the operational side of the business? Um, how did that how did that evolution happen happen for you? Um, so it was um, it really came about from a conversation you know with Steve Samuels who said you know we spent a lot of time putting our clients first and we we you know put our heart and souls in our clients and. Um, we need to do this, treat ourselves the same way we treat mm. our clients. And, you know, we need somebody whose day in, day out job is to focus on our company that way. And I think if you think about the way real estate companies, you know, I think particularly in this town, and it's probably similar in other places as well, but have evolved, you know, many of the companies are founder started and led. They have a period of moderate growth, and then they go through a period of exponential growth in their business. Um, but by the way they're funded, they're fun the deals are funded. Mm -hmm. The companies yeah. are not funded. They're not like a VC model, yeah. right? So the the business grows at this exponential rate, but the company doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden they wake up and they're like, oh my gosh, we're, you know, we went from 10 to a hundred people yeah. and we're a real company now. Yeah. And we have to take care of these people. And you know, we need to we need process and system and structure. Um and it's it happens after the fact, right? After you know the business is just operating at this crazy pace, um, and so that's really what precipitated that conversation. And so um, you know he said, "What do you think? Um, you, you've got the right skill set for it. You want to give it a shot?" And so I said, "Sure." Um, so I gave up, you know, really all of my development deals at the time, other than the Pierce. I was kind of midway mm -hmm. through that, so I finished that project, but. Um, you know, moved over into that role. And I, again, I sort of fell into something that I didn't know that I love doing. 
Um, but I really did. And I guess in hindsight being what it is, you know, when I went, I, I got my MBA when I was at Staples, I started it. I finished it when I was at Samuels and I went back because I wanted more financial skills, but I gravitated towards all the organizational development Mm -hmm. classes. So now the role I'm in, it makes sense, right? Like that was really what I was passionate about, but, um, but that's how it evolved. So did you see that coming at all? Or was that like totally out of left field? Yeah, I did not see that coming. Okay. Yeah. That's that's fascinating, and so and I believe uh, your MBA was a Babson as well. Is yeah, that right. Yeah, because I know yeah. PT is yeah. a Babson guy too. So yeah. I'm surprised yeah. he made it through there. But yeah, you are a much more accomplished, <laughs> <guy and> smarter <laughs> than he is. So <laughs> my teeth. That's all right. Um, and you were. I was 06. You were 04. 04, Yeah. Yeah. So I think we crossed for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So what what is the lens that you think you bring to the to the table as a as a COO? And it sounds like you know companies use COOs in different ways. It sounds like your focus has been sort of the internal side of the business, which a lot of them are. But what's what's the lens you think you bring, or or the or the philosophy that you bring to help build that sort of infra, internal infrastructure and culture, and in in whether it was Samuel's uh, previously or, or or the Davis companies now? I think it's all about people. Um, I think it's everything points to people. I think we are in the people business, and if everything ties back to focusing on people, then everything else will align. Mm. Um, and I would say the next biggest thing is communication, because if you look at 99.9% of issues that you're blocking and tackling every day, they're usually, they usually point result to communication issues. So, Mm. um, it, I really just focus largely on that. Yeah. It sounds like at least Steve in the past, and I'm sure the similar at the Davis companies now, you know, as we see development companies led by sort of visionaries and deal junkies oftentimes in those things. And you said the, the operational, operational excellence kind of lags. Do you ever find there's some conflict between trying to develop that operational excellence in internal culture versus just trying to find the next deal, make sure it works and make sure the economics of the deal works versus supporting the the company overall? I mean, I think my experience is like, so I don't, I'm not a deal junkie. Like I was a developer and I think I was a, I was a good developer. I was a great like quarterback, right? I was great at driving something down the field and just get execution junkie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, you know, I was not somebody who was out like driving around looking at real estate every weekend. Mm-hmm. It's just, it wasn't who I was, right? Like, was I, you know, running performas and like following up on every detail on the weekends and doing that? Yes. But I was not, you know, looking for the next deal. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, I remember Steve said to me, like, it might be hard for you to give up development to do this job. And it, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it actually yeah. wasn't. And it probably because I don't have that in my blood. Yeah. Um, I actually think like if you can pair the deal junkie with somebody who doesn't have that in their blood and somebody who does like the process and does, you know, kind of thrive on kind of organizational excellence and um, operational excellence and execution, then I think it is a good yin yang and, mm-hmm. and, and somebody who, you know, if that deal junkie can appreciate those other qualities and know that you need that in order for, you know, your growing business to be successful, then I think it can be, it, it can be a very effective, you know, marriage. Good partnership. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. I, I agree with that totally. And I think, I think it is sort of important to have both sides of those coin for any well-functioning successful business in a lot of, in a lot of cases, because you, you need, you need that. You need someone that's really pushing and driving the, the ball forward, but but you also need to make sure you have the infrastructure to support that, the team and the culture and the people and, the, right. and you're empowering your old team to execute against whatever the vision might be. So, right. yeah. Um, 
so what what is how do you like what are some good you know maybe practices or, or philosophy that you think are very helpful for especially for real estate development companies to help develop a strong culture and that sort of back-end operational um, excellence um, well, I think on the culture side, whether it's real estate or, or anything, I think, you know, if you look at kind of the up and coming generations that are in the workplace, right, I think they're looking to work for many different things today, right? It's it's not just clocking in, clocking out. It's not just coming to work to do my work, right? They're looking for social connections. They're looking for community engagement. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for strong vision, Um they're looking for you to, you know, think about wellness. Mm -hmm. They're looking to learn. They're looking to grow. And so uh, those are kind of all the areas in the wheel of culture. Uh, like I actually have like a spreadsheet with all those categories that like I just showed it yesterday at a staff meeting. Like these are all the areas that we're programming to, to nurture for, for all of you. And, you know, if we were all working a 40 hour week, there's 160 hours in the week. We know everybody's working more than that. So we know like not everything here is going to speak to you. Like you might not want to come to a book club. You might not want to come to a new, you know, a new higher breakfast and hear the story of Davis, mm -hmm. right? You might not want to come to a mindfulness session. You might not want to volunteer, you know, doing an up and out um, with the heading home or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Right. But some of these things will speak to some people and, um, and, you know, or you might, you know, some training or education, but hopefully something speaks to you and you'll take an hour or two out of those 160 and do something for yourself that either takes care of yourself or helps you grow or learn or connect with your colleagues that you might not normally do. And it, therefore it feels, you know, more mm -hmm. right it doesn't feel like a grind and you know you feel more connected you feel more you know full more wholesome mm -hmm. you feel like you can be yourself all of that yeah no, I, I think that's so so true and 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 i think you know w once there's a certain scale established you can start to really set up that you know wheel or flywheel of activities and options for people and but i think what you touched on earlier was talking about the mission and the purpose and the why that's so critical to underlie all that because you know if you're not at the 100 people, 200 people, whatever type company, you may not quite have the infrastructure for that sort of level of, um, you know, HR infrastructure, people, people operations infrastructure. But but I think having that why and make sure that continually is reinforced with the team is so critical, especially in this day and you know, forever and ever, but especially more so in this day and age. That yeah. And even just I mean, again, like we had our staff meeting yesterday and we just walked through kind of like what are like our top, you know, seven and we, we, we spent a lot of time at the leadership level, like, let's get it to a really short list, guys, right? Like, what yeah. are the, you know, five? We started with, like, can we get it to five? We couldn't get it to five, <laughs> but we got it to seven, right? That's so a win. That's a win. Yeah. That's what are the seven things that we have to get done this year, right? What does everybody need to be focused on? Why are they putting their feet on the floor in the morning to come in here? And what are they doing? Yeah. Um, we need to be really clear, like, what do we have to get done this year? And why, how does everybody's work contribute to those seven things? Mm. Um, and just make it super clear to people. And how do we reiterate it? And how does everything that everybody does tie into at least one of those seven things? Yeah, yeah so it sounds a lot like what we do. We use a system called uh, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, a similar kind of goal setting framework to what you're talking about. I don't know if it is the same one that you use, but it is so important to make sure everyone's tied up and aligned. Yeah. And, know where that what they're doing is 
is, is, is working, you know, within the, the structure of the company goals and what we're all trying to strive to. So, yeah. Um, what, um, what's, what's your, no, I guess maybe to dive into a, a slightly third rail topic, but what's, what's kind of the take on, on, or how do you think your people are reacting? And I don't know what the operations are in, in Davis right now, but uh, as far as like remote work, hybrid work, kind of that environment, where's your, where's your team kind of settling in on, on that? Um, so we're largely in the office, you know, we have, it's, it's sort of department by department. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, you know, some teams who have a very, um, specific kind of three days, you know, in two days out for the most part, though, most people are in every day, um, which is very different. Like, you know, at Samuels, like I, you know, we, we were closed for a very long time during COVID and we were late to come back and, um, and we came back, you know, three fixed collaboration days a week and two flex days. Mm Um, you know, I think, the pandemic taught us. I, I, in fact, I remember the week before the pandemic happened, um, Roy Hirschlin was in our office giving us a presentation that he had just given at a conference about the future of workplace and about how it was going to go virtual yeah. and like the whole flex hybrid. And I remember I said to him, like, Roy, I don't know how this could possibly happen in our <laughs> right, world, right, you know, right, area right. of work. Like right. we, 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 yeah. we are so collaborative. Yeah. Like we have, you know, we sit around and we're rolling out plans and like, how could yeah. this possibly happen? And then like the next week we're like sending everybody home. Um, and clearly like the pandemic taught us that we can do it. And I think many companies had some of their most lucrative years during the mm-hmm. pandemic. And, you know, part of that was, you know, there was nothing else to do, right? None right. of us could do anything else other than work. Um, and, but I think, you know, we're now in this place that, um, you know, is it healthy that people are working at home? You know, there's these hundred percent remote jobs. Is that, is that like healthy for any human to be working remotely all of the time? I'm not sure it is. Mm. Um, you know, I think, you know, having work-life balance is important. I think like the traffic it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, you know, I, I come in every day, mm-hmm. Mondays and Fridays. It's like a breeze. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's like, it feels like rush hour is like yeah. every day of the, every hour of the day. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like there's no start and end to the day. It's like people's days are all over the place. Um, which, you know, I guess is good. Like there's more flexibility for people, which I think is a good thing. It's not this rigid, you must be in by this day, hour and must be out by yeah. that hour. Um, and so I, I think there's some happy medium. Um, but I personally think having, you know, some kind of clarity around what, you know, whatever company it is, having clarity around a policy and having an equitable policy for everybody. Mm. You know, I, um, I think, you know, we talked about this and, um, you know, there was this article recently where Jamie Dimon talked about, you know, their policies and how, you know, remote poli- remote work is great for working mothers. And I just cringed when I read that because I'm like, that we're like going back to the 50s, you know, it's like, so we're making these policies. So great. Working mothers can stay home and stay out of sight while, you know, fathers can come in and work. And now we're back to that dynamic where. I feel like we've made so much progress where, you know, now com- many companies have, you know, parental leave where mothers and fathers can take right. leave and that that's becoming more normalized and it's not just a female mother issue. Yeah. Um, and now we're going to send mothers home and we're just going to let, you know, men be in the office in front of their bosses and, you know, it's just a slippery slope. So I feel like, 
whatever the policy is should be equitable and available to everybody that that levels the playing field yeah, yeah. it is it's amazing uh, to go back to the earlier point and then i want to come back to the that last thought about the equitable but it's amazing the, the 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 sort of power of human ingenuity when you put a constraint on something like to have to go have to go remote next week it ha you can make it happen but yes. like you, you would have never for you know had the foresight to see that or plan for that three years ahead if you you know if you had that much time to work for it so it, no, and I remember thing. interviewing people pre-COVID who would say, like, you know, I need to work remote twice a week, you know, whatever. I have small kids. I need to do. I need the flexibility. And I'm like, I'm sorry, we don't do it. And yeah. it's like, how crazy is that? Yeah. Like, that was six months before COVID. And then here we're all sitting <laughs> yeah. at home for two years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And so so just to just to kind of echo on the equitable, but now that we're sort of beyond, you know, hopefully beyond COVID, I'm not even sure these days still. But uh, <laughs> if you ask my kids, I'm missing school every other week. I don't know. But <laughs> but um, but now that we're sort of past that part of the, the pandemic and back to like figuring out what is what is the right form for remote hybrid work? And, and I think a key part, what you just said, is to make sure we have an equitable policy, whatever your company is, whether you're fully remote, fully in-person, hybrid, or some combination. Do you have any thoughts or ideas like how, how what makes sense? I know each company is different, certainly, but how to make sure, I guess, in, in commercial real estate or other, how can we make sure we're not, um, not creating, you know, roadblocks for women to be sort of empowered to grow their careers, especially as you reflected on that sort of Jamie Dimon quote and, and, and other things that we've seen out there from from some other companies. But is there do you have any thoughts on how that what, what, what we should consider with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little impartial to this because I created this policy, but I liked the the fixed collaboration days mm -hmm. and the flex days because what I liked about that was it got us off Zoom. Like, I'm so sick of sitting on <laughs> Zoom and Teams all day long. Like, I'm sick of looking at myself. I'm sick of sitting in my office with the door closed on teams with people in my same office. It's ridiculous, right? Like yeah. the, what I liked about that is like it gets everybody off of that. And like we're all in the office. We can sit in a room together. Um, and then the the flex days, like you can be where you want to be. You want to be in the office? Great. You want to be at home? Fine. You know, mm -hmm. the expectation is we're all working and that's the expectation. So yeah. I, I feel like that is something that should work mm. and um but I, I you know yeah and what's the right balance three days four days i, th I think that's probably i agree with the philosophy but because I, I think i think it i think there is something missed when you're not able to collaborate in person yeah. at least on some period of time and i think it varies by company like how often that may need to be um, but I, I think that's that's the kind of right way to think about yeah. it, because, you know, if people can avoid the commute a few days a week yes. and then, you know, come in and collaborate other days and make sure. But but I think one of the th and we ran into this challenge a little bit and I think we still are to some degree to try to figure out exactly what that cadence works Because what you don't want to happen is that you've got half of a team in the office and the other yes. half. not. That's yeah. no, there's no yeah. point to that whatsoever. Not at all. I agree. So it's just a matter of creating those collaboration days or fixed collaboration days that you refer to that makes a lot yeah. of sense to make sure you're, you're working together. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good that's a good point. So, um, PT, I don't know if you got any, anything you want to dive in there on these topics. Well, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, um, you know, equity and I, when, when did you kind of get your first exposure? I think you, we, you know, we had a previous conversation you were talking about maybe it was the continuum project, right. And where we've had a lot of progress, yeah. but you know, what are you seeing right now as sort of the, the roadmap to keep that going and, and improve? I mean, I think there's been a lot of progress. Like I mentioned Continuum. That was the first project I worked on when we, that was with Harvard University. 
Harvard has a very large female leadership presence. And I remember walking into the room and it, like the, that room of the Harvard team was dominated by women. And it was like overwhelmingly refreshing, like that, that the men on were like the minority. I mean, it was it was like such a role reversal. <laughs> um, and I mean, that was back in 2000, you know, 12, 2013. So that was like almost a decade ago. Um, but I think, I mean, I feel like we've made big progress over the last two decades. Um, and even over the last few years, like I've been involved in this DEI collaborative, um, which is a group of the staff and, um, and the staff and the board members of NAOP, ULI, crew, um, REFA, you know, all the, mm -hmm. all the industry groups finally got together and said, you know, we're all working on DEI initiatives and we really should be like pooling our resources yeah. and doing this together. And Paul Ayub has been really instrumental in leading this um, and kind of really facilitating yeah. being a master facilitator, which he's wonderful at doing. Mm. Um, and it, it, I think it's really been terrific and it's, it, it's every group has really been, I think very conscious about diversifying their board leadership um, diversifying their membership, adding, making sure that their programming is diversified, mm -hmm. making sure that when they're doing panels, that it's, it's not just, you know, older white men that are speaking at every panel. Um, so I think there's a real consciousness around this that did not exist even three years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, all of the board members are going through training, you know, DEI and unconscious bias training. So I think there's a real, commitment um, amongst the leaders in the business, in the real estate community towards this. So, um, I mean, this is a drum that I've been beating for a long time saying like, why aren't we taught, you know, at NAOP, you have all of the business leaders in the room, you know, all the decision makers who can make it happen. They are the ones who could go back and say, yeah, we're going to do this. So why aren't we talking to them about it? So I think it's great. I think, I mean, listen, there, we're, there's still work to do. Um, but I think if you look at the numbers, like there is definitely change happening and it doesn't happen overnight, but it, it there, we are moving in the right direction. I think that's right. And, and just to echo that, just to give Paul a credit for sure. Cause I remember what I was, I think it was the year I was chair of Greb and he had, he had sort of brought up the fact that we really need to get a DAI um, statement and policy into yeah. so we can work together. And the idea to bring uh, these various industry groups together to do that is in a much more powerful way is really I think it's very, very helpful in the past, you know, three to four or five years. Yeah. Lose track of time now with COVID. Right. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, yeah. Whatever it's been. Probably but even yeah. longer. Yeah. 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 So, but, um, so I think, I think that is, that is great to bring these organizations together and see a lot more of that. To your point, like just, you know, get some visibility on panels, on boards, on committees, on, you know, whatever it might be to really kind of encourage that to show that, hey, um, you know, women can be successful in this industry. There are opportunities here for that to, to make that in, in, a, in, a, in minorities as well and make that yeah. really a, um, uh, a, a, an important part of all, each of our platforms in that, in that regard. Yeah. And part of, I mean, I think with women, there's at least a pipeline with people of color. There's not even enough of a pipeline mm. to, to make a difference. So I think that's the other thing we've talked about is, I mean, I think what everyone's really focused on are these pipeline programs, whether through it's through the Crest program, um, through Thrive, um, which, you know, I think these are all pipeline programs that look at really 
targeting youth that are, you know, in high school yeah. that that these programs that support, you know, really like high achieving high school students to get them, you know, support them through college and, you know, introduce them to commercial real estate. Because yeah. I think unless unless you come from like a commercial real like a real estate family or background, like I think it's really hard to fall in. I mean, I sort of fell into it. I, right. you know, I think it's really hard to fall into commercial real estate. So, <laughs> um, it, it, there's a lot of work that goes into like educating people about commercial real estate. Yeah. So there's a lot of work that needs to go into introducing, you know, to, to people of color, the whole commercial real estate field and opportunities that exist. Um, and so th there, I think it really, it has opened up all of our eyes about the work that needs to be done much sooner than just trying to work with recruiters to yeah. just give us a diverse slate of candidates. Right, yeah. right. There's just not right. a deep enough pool. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah. that, and that's, yeah. and that's the key, that's the key part is you've got to build that pipeline. It takes yeah. some time to do, but unless you build the pipeline, even just, you know, recruiting, you know, who else is in the market that may already have real estate experience is only going to get you so far. That's right. That's why, you know, to go back to another sort of thing at Greb, you just reminded like the Greb um, Foundation and the scholarship fund that we've had with um, to try to um, give scholarships to, um, you know, minorities in inner city and, and, and families that need support going to college and need funds to go to college to help do that, but also develop an internship program to help sort of just open people's eyes to what yeah. the different types of commercial real estate there are, whether it's property management, development, you know, brokerage, any other sort of aspect there that's really exciting to see these kids come up and be like, I had the best internship of my summer with, you know, who, whatever, wind companies or whatever else is out there doing doing really cool things. Yes. So, Charles Gates. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... But, uh, but I think that's that's great. I, I agree that that pipeline is really getting built in a, in a very successful successful yeah. way, which is awesome to see. What do you think right now is, you know, some, actually, I, let me, let me take a different approach. You're obviously, well, how long have you been with Davis now? About six or nine months? No, only four. Only four months. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay, cool. So really new. So <laughs> yes. what's the, um, obviously it's been fantastic, but what's it the has. experience? Like, I guess, what have you been tasked with at Davis to, to uh, try to, try to accomplish or what's, you know, as far as bringing you in and bringing in the CEO, COO and the, and the role there? Um, so I, I think a couple of things. One, focusing on organizational process and systems. Um, so I'm just kind of scratching the surface. I've started, kind of came in and started by interviewing pretty much everyone in the company. I've gotten through to 85. I think I'm around 85 interviews. Oh, so wow. I sat oh, down wow. with That's 85 awesome. people with 30 minute, yeah. you know, one on ones just to, you know, one, meet them and two, really try to hear from them how they perceive the organization. And I'm starting to, you know, consolidate all the feedback, which there's definitely some themes, but just to understand, you know, from, you know, how do, how do they perceive the organization? You know, what allows them to get their job done well? What gets in the way? Um, you know, tell me about the culture, um, talk about training, just to hear from people, like, where are the places that, you know, work well? Where do we need to kind of focus on? Mm. Um, and then, um, so those are really the areas that I'm, Nice. You know, focused on awesome, and and you know, feel free to share what you can or what you can't. But um, I'm curious, like, what's we are operating cadence at, at Davis, and how do you how do you, how does a how does a, a a real estate development company like that operate? 
Fast. Fast, yeah. <laughs> Fast. Like the, the days fly by and, yeah. you know, it's 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 intense. But yeah. I, I don't think any, I think any real estate companies like that. Yeah. I mean, I felt that way yeah. at, at Samuels. I think I think that that is just real estate. It's, it just moves at a lightning pace. Like yeah. there's just, there's not enough hours in the day to accomplish everything when mm. you want. I think when yeah. you're, that, that's the deal junkie yeah. mentality. Well, yeah. And you mentioned that earlier, right? Which is like that, um, sort of that push pull between, you know, just being so deal focused and deal centric with how everyone's operating day to day versus, you know, what, what you're doing, right. Which is kind of rebuilding and, yeah. you know, the foundation in a way where it's, you know, company centric versus deal centric. And, um, do you think enough real estate development companies, especially of significant size, like a Davis or a Samuels or, or, are doing what you're doing or have done and should they be? <laughs> yeah, I I don't. I mean, if you look around at the companies in, in this town, I mean, there aren't a lot of real estate companies that have a COO, right? right? Yeah. So, I mean, they have partners, right. right, who have grown the business, but they're, I mean, I I don't think there are a lot of them that are like focused on the day to day operations, right? I think most of those partners are deal junkies as well. So, I don't think so. Um, you know, somebody's got operational responsibilities, right? Somebody's right. focused on that. But I, I don't think that it's something that they're necessarily as focused on as they probably could be. And and, and what do you think, you know, um, that the value is really? Like, wh how would you express your value as a COO as really that focus on operational specifically? What can it do to help, you know, achieve results of, of a development company? And what's the value that really is getting delivered across the organization? I mean, I think if you have, you know, people who are satisfied and engaged, I think that you really can't put a price tag mm -hmm. on that, right? Like it lowers your turnover, you get better results from that. I think if you have, you know, efficient processes and you kind of eliminate redundancy, you eliminate kind of that headbutting, frustration, like, yeah. you know, overlap, why am I doing it this way? Why am I touching this four times, right? All of that stuff. Like you definitely can find efficiency in the machine, right? Instead of having to hire somebody new, you probably can find the ability to just reduce some inefficiency to avoid having to hire somebody um, to to do something extra. So I think that's the that's where you find. Yeah. The, the, that's where you get the value. Yeah, I think especially in the real estate development space where you have, you know, multiple different deals going on that are all unique and interesting in their own way, but there are enough similarities between them that you can really develop and start to fine tune that process. Yes. And so you don't have the overlapping or differentiated processes from, you know, one project manager to the next or whatever the case might be. And there's, there's a lot of value, I think, to unlock that a lot of real estate uh, and real estate development companies are unlikely to have taken advantage of yet without, you know, someone like you and a CEO or, or an operational focused role. Yeah. So it's exciting. It was, it was really cool to see that when you jumped on board um, uh, Davis as well, who's, you know, we, we love working with. So it's exciting to see that and, 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 and some of that really incredible momentum. I'm sure you're, you're building over there. So good, good on, uh, good on them for seeing the talent in, in, in that we have in front of us right now. But what what is what are some of the what are some of the roadblocks or have you run into any roadblocks either either in your own career in the business or you know things that you would say maybe advice you would give to either your younger self or someone entering the business and maybe you know someone especially who's who's a, who's a female coming into the business is there any advice you would give or roadblocks you 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 know foresee for people that, that they need to think about um 
I don't know. I think probably advice I would give my younger self and that I give to people, younger people as well, is to just be patient. Mm. I think I was not patient when I was younger. You know, I wanted <laughs> everything right away. You know, I and I think um, I, and and I think most people do. They want, you know, I've worked hard. Why am I not getting this? Yeah. You know, this and I think you just have to be patient. And if you feel like you work for good people who you believe will do the right thing, like you just have to be patient sometimes. And um, often there are things that you don't know about that are going on in the background that just might not enable what you want to happen at the time you want it to happen. Um, you know, and I think I probably would have told my younger self to just relax a little bit, like you know, <laughs> chill out a little bit. Um so yeah. that's what I would say. I, th I think that's good advice. Cause I, I think now more than ever, truthfully, too, because you see a lot of people jumping into the workforce who, who want everything right now. They yeah. want the promotion yesterday. Yes. They right. want the yeah. raise today. Yeah. They want to, and So you see this, I think, manifesting in people jumping around from job to job just for a little bit higher salary or a little bit you know, better title or whatever. But they don't ever really learn how to do the job or do the job well. And I think, well it may be good for them in the short run to make a little bit more money in the long run. It's going to stunt their career growth. And I, I, I think, I think that's the point you were making if, if you agree. Yeah. And I also really believe in like working for good people. Mm -hmm. Like if you work for good people, that, that I think that's hard to find. And there's a lot of value in the people who you can really learn from people who you trust, like, that, you know, there's a price tag to be put on that. And, yeah. and like a little bit of patience could, could pay off. Yeah. And I, and I think it's another example of why having that sort of organizational philosophy or building that operational excellence, building the culture, building the people ops infrastructure gives your employees and your team confidence that they are working for a good company, a good team, and, and helps them sort of retain and, and grow, grow talent within the organization rather than having people jump around. So that's, yeah. in my opinion, another reason why it's important what, what you're doing. Yeah. What, what do you think are, you know, just a, a couple of examples of how you can, you know, reinforce that messaging to people that they are working for a good organization and good people? And what are things you can do on a management level that, you know, really kind of emphasizes that to hopefully foster that patience where people will, you know, have that faith that, you know, that is the situation they're in and, and, you know, good things will happen if they, you know, continue to kind of go down the path they're on. Yeah. I mean, I think something as simple as just giving people the time, right? Like I know I've had people say to me, like, you know what, Leslie, like you are so busy all the time, but like you always make the time, like you might be running out the door. And if I say to you, like, Hey, do you have a minute? Like you sit down and take your coat off and you always have a minute. Like I think something as simple as that, like, makes people feel like, you know, okay, I'm working for somebody who, like, you know, values me and is giving me time and, you know, is treating me well, right? Like, it's really simple stuff, right? Um, and I think the value in and, – and people who do the right thing, right, who – um, you know, take a long-term approach, right? I mean, we're at entering, you know, challenging economic times, right? Like, there are some companies who go straight to like cutting people as like a as a as as one approach to bottom line, right? There's other people who take a longer view approach and say, you know, that's the last place we're gonna go, right? We're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna haircut our senior people, right? Before we take it out of everybody else, right? Like to like those that's to me is like your work. That's your work. Like that if that's the last resort of like you know, trying to, you know, trim the bottom, right. And cut people. And, um, I don't know, to me, like that's good people. Like if that's where you're going last and that's the last resort, mm -hmm. like that's, that's good people. 
Um, and I, and I think if I reflect on my own, like I could have moved, you know, I say I was at one, one organization for 20 years. Mm. Nobody does that anymore. Right? right. I could have moved many times along the way, but like, I probably wouldn't have become a COO if I moved 20, if I moved along the way, I would have probably just been another developer at another place. And, you know, maybe that would have been fine, but like I was able to move into this great opportunity that I never even thought was something I wanted or would be available to me and found something that I was really passionate about and loved. So, um, like there's something to be said for having a little patience. Yeah. And do you think that, that, that also helped you sort of build that balance in your own life and just in terms of raising a family and working, you know, trying to trying to strike that right balance of, 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 of really focusing on being really successful at your job and, and helping people in the, in the workforce in, in your company, but also in your own personal life as well, which I think is important for, for all of us to, to understand where we need to strike that balance. Yeah, I have not been great at balance. Um, I mean, I, you know. <laughs> it's not easy. It, it's not easy. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I realized during the pandemic, it was a, it was a very eye opening moment, like during the first three months when we were having breakfast, lunch and dinner together yeah. as a family. And I realized like I've had more meals with my kids in three months than I think I've had with them in my, you know, in their entire Mm -hmm. existence, right? Like, because, you know, I would do go to this event and that event and this work event and that work event, like, you know, probably three nights at least a week after work for dinner. And I was home late. And, you know, I made a pact with myself, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And so kind of post pandemic, like, I allow myself one night at at most two, Mm -hmm. but like, if it's two, it's got to be something really important that I can't get out of. Otherwise, I just say no. I'm just yeah. not going to do it. And it, that you know, it's hard to do, but it's been a good thing. Yeah. Um. And you know, my kids are, you know, I'm at the tail end. They're 16 and 17, mm-hmm. so I'm on close to borrowed time at this point with them. <laughs> but but um, you know, it's like uh, there was a time in my career I had to do those yeah. things, but it's but you pay a price for it. Like yeah. I feel like I missed a lot doing that. It's a it's a it's a hard thing, I think, for for all of us and and for me as well. And and you know, you want to you want to do the best you can. I think ultimately you want to do the best you can for your family, and that might be at certain times just grinding and working or going yeah. to the event and networking because you know you're 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 trying to make what's best for the family in the long run. Uh, at least this is the way I think about it. It sounds like you do too from your from your nodding, but 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 it's hard. It's really hard to make those yeah. decisions in in real time and then in, in, in reflecting back and and thinking forward about what you want your life to be. So. And, and it is one of the things I think is important as you're trying to establish a culture and sort of the norms within a business too to say, okay, what are the what are the what are the leaders doing? What do they have to do? How how much do they have to grind and put in? Or how much are they willing to? But also, where do they understand where we're trying to strike that balance for all the people in the yeah. organization? And I think that's a really key part of the culture, especially especially now we're trying to establish that culture now uh, more than ever before. Yeah. I'm I'm always very open about in fact I had a I remember it was I don't know it was probably at least a decade ago when I found out at work like somebody above me was leaving in the middle of the day to go get a haircut and I remember thinking like so they're leaving to go get a haircut and I'm stressing to go to like take a kid to a doctor like okay no more like I'm not doing that anymore like I'm not gonna tie myself up in knots because I'm taking my kid to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and they're just going to go get a haircut in the middle of the day. Like, so um, I'm totally open about where I go and like, and I leave, you know, I, 
I leave at a normal time mm-hmm. to, you know, and I feel like it's important to set that example. And even if I get on and do work at night, um, it's fine. Like I, I don't think, um, I think it's imperative that leaders do set that example. Yeah. And I put it in my calendar. Like if I'm going to a kid thing, like I put it in my calendar so people can see yeah. it. Um, I used to hide it and I don't anymore because yeah. I think people really just need to be able to be transparent about it. Yeah. I think I think that's important. I think I think that's one of the sort of the, the wins of COVID that pe- more people seem yes. to be realizing and recognize that, which is which is the good thing. Um, so, although I will say, I feel like you were staring right at me that I need a haircut when you were talking about going to get a haircut with my with my hair right now. <laughs> hey, guess what? I was late Monday morning. This can't, you know, this doesn't happen by itself. And then this guy, I mean, he has a hair. I don't think he's had a haircut since COVID. Look at that. It's good to meet you. It's been a while. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We got the yin and the yang. Thank you. So, um, speaking of kind of growth and and learning and and establishing that for the team, but what do you what do you do personally for kind of growth and learning and whether it's industry or leadership or operations? How do you how do you how do you learn? Um, so I'm a, I say I'm a reader, but I'm really I'm a listener. So mm-hmm. I listen yeah. to books, uh, to audiobooks, and then I'm a big like Fast Company, mm-hmm. Inc., Harvard Business Review yeah. reader. Um, so I listen to books to and from the office. I, you know, start my morning with all the newsletters from those different publications. Um, and then I do a Monday morning tidbit that I share with the office every Monday. So I, you know, read all these and then I hoard them and then send them, you know, um, pre-send them, right? Like I set them out to send and I send them every more, every Monday, to share them. Um, cause I think it just gives people, you know, if people are spending like two minutes just reading them and they get a nugget of like how to run a better meeting or how to give difficult feedback mm-hmm. or, um, you know, anything topics like that. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, how, and then I, you know, I, you know, attend conferences. There's a great conference called Wobi, the world of business ideas. Mm-hmm. They have a great leadership conference that I love to attend cool. and nice. stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. Wobi, is it? Wobi. Yeah. It's great. It's in New York oh, every year. It's 10. It's a two-day conference. It's 10 speakers. Are like They speak an hour and a half, um, like just back-to-back, but it's terrific. Awesome. Yeah. I'll check that out. That sounds interesting. Um, you, you mentioned actually sort of giving feedback, and I know you, you mentioned that earlier as far as one of your one of the things you think is very important, but is there is there... Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on giving feedback and are, are most people doing it wrong or is, you know, yes. what, what a thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, t- tell, tell me more. Tell me more. Um, I think people find it really hard to give feedback. And I actually think it's, um, you, you guys, there was a question you had asked me about something that people don't agree with That's me right, on. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, this was, right. this yeah. was my yeah. answer yeah. because I actually think it's one of the most kind things you can do is to give people direct feedback. And I think, People find it very hard to give direct feedback and they put it in a sandwich, right? They say something good and then they give you that feedback and then they say something good. And nine times out of 10, people walk out of there and they have not heard the the nugget of, you know, feedback that they really needed to hear because mm. they've just heard what they want to hear, which is the right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. right. And the, then the intent of the whole thing was to actually deliver the nugget, not the sandwich yeah. part, right? Yeah. And then... To your point, then there's a misalignment of where, you know, people's perception of performance may stand because they've walked out with the two pieces of bread on their mind and not yeah. the, the nugget in the middle. And yeah, and yeah. I think the kindest yeah. thing you can do is be able to say to somebody like, you know, he, here's the expectation, like here's where you are, 
you know, here's where we need you to go. And how can I help you get there? What do you need from me? Mm. Like, it, like, and that clear. Mm. And it's so hard for people to do. Mm. It, it is extremely hard, right? And, and and even especially in the moment when you're out, you know, when you're working fast, you're operating quickly, and you're, you know, you're just trying to get things done. You're like, uh, you know, and you, it's, so it's hard for people to focus on. I think hard for leaders and supervisors to focus on giving good feedback and direct feedback. And so that's what happens. They fall into this trap of the shit sandwich, which I've done myself plenty of times too. Unfortunately, I will say there's a great book. I don't know if you've read it yet or listened to it yet. Uh, when they win, you win by Russ Laraway. It's a tremendous oh, book about leadership. Just came out this year. I've been telling everyone to read it, okay. and I think you'd get a lot out I'll of it, it for sure. So yeah, I got it on Audible. Okay. I- I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. He gives me a hard time because I'm, I'm a you know book listener. Yeah, it works. Yeah. It works. Oh, for me. Nothing, nothing wrong with right. listening oh, no, at all. No, no. Yeah, nothing wrong with that yeah. at all. I still, know. still reading yeah. counts. I'll, right. I'll give you credit for it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a fantastic book. I've been recommending to a lot of a lot of people that I've I've taken a lot out of for from sort of just establishing culture, vision, goal setting, and feedback yeah. specifically. Yeah, so it's really it's really good. And I, obviously, I gave it to a lot of people like BT. Yeah, no, it was great. It really was. Um, so, um, what are you looking forward to over the next three years in at Davis and in the real estate development industry here in here in Boston or in the in the cities you guys serve as uh, at Davis? Well, I think particularly for the organization, you know, this process building and kind of process improvement, this this stuff takes time, which I've shared with a lot of people. Like it, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Because it's a lot of behavior change, mm. which is involves people. And so it, it takes time. I mean, it took me five years at SNA to kind of, you know, move that dial. So it um, and it has to happen slowly to, for it to be effective, you know, because if you just come in and say like, we're doing it this way, now we're going to do it this way. It doesn't work. Right. Like you can't be, it can't be you know, a dictatorial type of exercise, right? It has to be done collaboratively and you've got to get the people who are in that process to really help reshape that process and then help implement it and show others kind of how it's done and yeah. bring people along. So I think that will keep me busy for yeah. <laughs> for a while. Um, but so I think I think that's what I'll be focused. Exciting, on. Very, yeah. very cool. That's very yeah. exciting. So I think um, um, to kind of wind down and kind of sort of wrap it up together, couple of couple of questions to, to close out. But what um, just to kind of maybe even more future looking and develop because you had such a key role in this development of the Fenway with Samuels and stuff. Like, what do you where do, where do you see Boston in ten or fifteen years? What are you excited about in the city? Well. Um, you know, I'm hopefully excited for a future with more housing. Mm -hmm. I know it's a big topic Mm -hmm. of conversation, but it's definitely something that's needed. I think it's key. More housing is key to more development, right? Like more, you know, if there's, if, if I'm a new business that wants to come here and bring new employees, I mean, we need someplace for them to live. So I think, it, it kind of is a snowball. So I think figuring that out, how to make that happen is going to be really important. I think there are a lot of smart people working on it. Um, so I'm optimistic that it will happen. I'm, I'm optimistic as well, because it is such, I mean, this affordability crisis and just figuring out how to, you know, build appropriately well-planned housing is, is just exceedingly difficult. I think, I think it's difficult, um, you know, especially the way we have have kind of local rule here and a lot of a lot of not a lot of places we do have it a city town by town and city by city zoning which makes it difficult and you know i saw an example of um even in, in braintree where they're kind of rebelling against a project at the south shore mall not rebelling i shouldn't say that but like this pushback against the project which is like you're developing 
more housing on a parking lot at a mall. Right. That seems like an ideal situation to put more housing, you right. know? And so, so we have to find a way, I think, to educate more people in the public to say, okay, adding, you know, three or 4% to your housing stock is not going to totally change your town. It's not going to ruin your way of life. It's not going right. to... You know, it's actually going to be better for your city or town. It's going to be better for the people in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's going to be, you know, just it's going to lead to more opportunities, more growth, and, and better housing stock. But I think, I think I, the good news is, I I do believe that there's more and more people that are realizing that and are getting it. It's just it's going to take some more time, as yeah. you said, to figure that out and understand that this is a supply problem ultimately. Yeah. Yep. Um, that is difficult to change without more supply. Now, there's other stuff that we can attack on the margins too, but the supply is the 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 the, the supply and density is the ultimate, you know, roadblock there for for affordable housing. Yeah, agree. One other question: If you had um, an unlimited budget but could only take one year, what um, what's the most impactful thing you think could be done to improve either the city or the real estate industry? I think if I had an unlimited budget, I think it would be to build housing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it would, you know, right now, I think what's preventing how we've, there's a lot of projects that are permitted yeah, that just totally. can't get going, yeah. right? And I think it's because of construction pricing is so high, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, there are, so I think if, if it was unlimited budget, I would let loose. Let's go. Let's, mm -hmm. you know, let's yeah. write the contracts and get it going. <laughs> um, so that's what I would do. Because cool. I, again, I think adding to that supply will just help. It, it will just start as it will start a domino effect, right? So yeah. that's what I would do. Get as much going as possible in mm -hmm. that year. A hundred percent agree yeah. with that. Definitely for sure. And then um, I guess last question is just unless PT's got another one to finish up with, but anything that we asked you, didn't ask you, but yes. should have asked you. I think you guys covered it. Yeah. <laughs> Ran the gamut. I think I think you I think you hit on everything. <laughs> well, um, Leslie, fantastic conversation. Thank Lots you. of fantastic yeah. advice that I am absolutely going to share with our entire team here because I think a lot of the, a lot of the points you touched on in terms of what your role, uh, what you're doing at COO of Samuels and now Davis is uh, exactly on point with what we want to be doing here as a company. And I'm sure a lot of other people have a lot of good takeaways of this too for running, you know, their real estate development investment organization or really any organization. So. Thank you for the advice, and uh, it was a you. really fantastic conversation. Yeah, great, great to have you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks for having me. Awesome, and we will see you soon on another episode of Empowered Returns. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate. And I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.